Welcome to Decision Vision, a podcast series focusing on critical business decisions. Brought to you by Brady Ware and Company. Brady Ware is a regional, full-service accounting and advisory firm that helps businesses and entrepreneurs make visions a reality. And welcome to Decision Vision, a podcast giving you, the listener, clear vision to make great decisions. In each episode, we discuss the process of decision-making on a different business topic. But rather than making recommendations because everyone's circumstances are different, we talk to subject matter experts about how they would recommend thinking about that decision. My name is Mike Blake, and I'm your host for today's podcast. I'm a director at Brady Ware & Company, a full-service accounting firm based in Dayton, Ohio, with offices in Dayton, Columbus, Ohio, Richmond, Indiana, and Alpharetta, Georgia, which is where we are recording today. Brady Ware is sponsoring this podcast. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on your favorite podcast aggregator, and please also consider leaving a review of the podcast as well. Uh, our topic today is uh, is family offices, and you know, family offices are probably one of the better kept secrets in the American economy. For the most part, family offices do not seek rock star status. They're very different from kind of your Silicon Valley. Uh, fast company, red herring, s- sort of, um, I don't want to say attention seeking. That's not fair, but very high profile, uh, organization. Um, th- the fact of the matter is you may work next to a family office. You may live in the same neighborhood as somebody who's in or works in a family office or has a family office and, and, and you wouldn't even know it. Um, we don't have yellow pages anymore, but if we did, there probably would not be an entry for uh, family offices, and I think we we can all kind of appreciate that uh, as as to why that is. But you know, the fact of the matter is that um, they are increasingly popular as a tool and an infrastructure for you know managing wealth. And you know, a lot of us on 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 you know the radio, myself included would love to have the problem where you have so much wealth that it becomes a different kind of responsibility to manage it. But the fact of the matter is it, it is a responsibility to manage it, especially if you're in a position where you are sharing it with family and there are not just family relationships but fiduciary relationships involved. And, and you know, it's, it's important also because I think a lot of, uh, a lot of people who are, who are creating wealth, particularly those who are creating it this generation, they're building it and then uh, either exiting it or transitioning their core enterprise, they're they're starting to realize that um, something called a shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves phenomenon. Um, there are all kinds of studies out there. You, I don't have to cite one in particular. You can Google it. That say that for the most part, if if a family makes um, or or generates or produces a, a, an amount of wealth, let's call it twenty million dollars, just to pick a number out there. Um, statistically speaking. In three generations or by generation three, only 10% of that wealth is, is going to remain. And by four, by the fourth generation, 3% of that wealth remains. And, you know, a, a, a great case in point is the Vanderbilt family. Uh, they built their, their wealth in the early 19th century in, uh, basically doing ferries around, uh, Manhattan and, uh, and Pennsylvania. Um, but the name is much stronger than the wealth. In fact, Anderson Cooper of CNN, who is uh, is actually a sixth generation Vanderbilt, has gone on record saying there ain't no trust fund waiting for him. 
And, you know, perhaps if they'd had a family office or a structure like that, you know, maybe that, that scenario would be different. So the goal of this podcast is to shed a little bit of light. If you're, if you're thinking of, uh, uh, whether a family office or something like that structure is useful for you, or maybe you're advising somebody who's thinking about a family office, um, the goal of this podcast is to provide some insight into that. And to help us with that, we're talking with, uh, Chris Dimitri. And Chris is a, a very successful entrepreneur uh, in his own right. He has more than 25 years of experience building successful technology businesses. He has extensive experience with family offices and is also an active player in the Atlanta startup community. He is currently the CEO of Laszlo, a digital platform that enables new channels for monetizing digitally stored value. Laszlo, and, and, I'm sorry, Laszlo evolves traditional gift cards, coupons, lottery tickets into dynamic digital assets that can be used as a vehicle for advertising, data collection, and branding while adding security to digitally stored value. Prior to Laszlo, Chris was a founder and partner of VP Ventures, a private investment firm focused on early stage and private equity transactions. Before VPV, Chris held C-level roles at, with successful startups including Recordant, STC Corp., Intelligentsia, and Urban Media. He also has a bachelor's degree in industrial, industrial management from the Georgia Institute of Technology. Chris Dimitri, welcome, and thank you so much for coming on the program. Michael, thanks for having me. I appreciate the uh, opportunity. Uh, looking forward to uh, today's uh, conversation. So, Chris, before we get in, I, w- I want to give you a little bit of an opportunity for a soapbox here, because I know this is a, a venture that's very near and dear to your heart. Tell us a little bit more about, about Laszlo. What does a listener listening to this program need to know about Laszlo, if anything? Well, no, I appreciate the opportunity. I love talking about uh, love talking about investments. You know, as a, unfortunately or fortunately, I'm a serial entrepreneur at heart. We haven't been able and, to cure uh, you yet. <laughs> Say that again? We have not been able to cure you yet. Yeah, no kidding. No kidding. I, uh, you know, I told somebody, it, it's literally like a drug. When you get involved with early stage companies, especially if the first one goes well, um, it's hard to kick that habit. But, uh, no, so, uh, with regards to Laszlo, uh, our core technology and our core platform is, uh, focused around changing the way Physical instruments today, physical value instruments today are converted into the digital world. And so we're creating a new digital platform to share, to purchase, uh, and to s- disseminate uh, stored value, being gift cards, um, coupons, event tickets, that type of uh, that type of stored value. So we've been working on it for a little while, and um, we're very excited about the uh, about our future. We think there's a real big opportunity here. All right, so good. thank you. We'll we'll be looking to uh, hear more about it as as time goes on. Um, so let's dive into. Yeah, well, the, Michael, yeah. Michael, I want to go back and point one thing out. As Anderson Cooper said, "There's no big trust fund there for him." That's only because he didn't want it. <laughs> you think, you think so? When his mother passed away, there was a almost quarter of a billion dollar fortune in place. Oh, is that right? I didn't know that. She she died with a two hundred. Uh, estimated 200 million dollar net worth okay um, but yeah that's now yeah, you know he was that's uh that's self-promotion on anderson's part but um but uh, no there was still a significant amount of wealth in her name and she's what uh, as you said i can't remember what generation but she's quite a ways down the line 
Yeah, she's she's fifth, so Sanderson's sixth. So, all right, good. So, first learning point of the day. We know know a little bit more about the Vanderbilts. So, um, <laughs> so uh, I, we've talked a little bit about this offline, and and I understand that you're not necessarily involved in a family office, but I know you're involved in some things that are family office like or have some family office features. So, I you know I I. I I think that there's a lot that we can talk about and educate the listeners, but let's start with a basic vocabulary starting point. You know, to, to your mind, when somebody says family office to you, what does that mean? Well, a, a true family office in my mind is a, um, it is a, a family network that operates very similar to a venture capital fund. Um, or a family office that operates very similar to a private equity fund. The main difference is, and again, it goes back to what you were saying with regards to, you know, how high a profile do these family offices typically try to keep? They don't need to keep a high profile. The reason they don't is because the LPs are the family. Whereas for private equity and venture, they do have to tout themselves and their successes to the marketplace because they've always got to go create that next fund to sustain, you know, you know, their long-term viability. And that means attracting new LPs in addition to the existing LP network that you had in your first or second fund uh, for each one thereafter. So, you know, that's a big part of the difference. But when you think of family offices, again, I think of a family office working very much like venture or private equity. Um, how it is structured can, you know, is completely different, but the LP network is what I think separates it the most, meaning all family versus outside capital. Okay. And so to that end, yeah, it, it, let's let's then kind of operate at that working definition that it's a it's a captive investment fund that just happens to belong to uh, a group of people all with the same last name or at least DNA traits. Um, sure. Uh, does that mean then that the family office also then faces similar challenges in terms of of deal flow and decision making in terms of good deals versus bad deals, governance, things of that nature? A number of questions here. So deal flow, the, I will tell you that um, the investment community around a, a family office. So let's take, for instance, here in Atlanta. If there are family offices here in Atlanta, typically the investment community, whether that be private equity, venture capital, um, you know, the accounting world, uh, from a deal flow standpoint, will have a good sense of what that family office likes to look at as far as types of deals, uh, what their appetite may be for size of deals, whether they want to own a whole, uh, you know, a, a majority stake in the company, or they want to follow behind a, uh, an investment group. So deal flow to me is not quite the same as a private equity group. Um, you know, who's out there looking at everything they can be, the family offices have the tendency to see less deals, but more targeted deals, if that makes sense. It does. Uh, that gets back to the thing you mentioned in your definition then. The network is really a key defining trait of the family office, isn't it? It is. It, it is as far as pre-screening deals. Uh, unlike, you know, I will call it a true venture group um, or a venture capital group who wants to look at most every deal. 
because, you know, uh, again, that's kind of their, you know, their charter uh, is to find, you know, to look at everything and, and know the marketplace, know everything going on in the marketplace, especially within us, you know, sectors. Uh, the family offices don't have to do that because they're typically invited in or invited to participate in deals or, you know, or they're looking at something that may be a core expertise that they want to own the whole deal or a majority of the deal. Okay. So I, I sidetracked us, but I want to get back because I think you oh, had right. another part, which was about governance. Do the, do, do family yeah. offices and private equity funds face similar governance issues or they wind up being very different? Uh, again, it, it, and this is one man's opinion, but I believe it's just how they are structured. Uh, you can have some family offices that are operated, you know, literally by a majority of outside advisors and, you know, uh, uh, invest, investment advisors, or you can have family offices that are run, you know, more by family members that are making investment decisions. Uh, I think a lot of that comes down to the capabilities of the, uh, you know, of the individuals. As I've said to you before, I think a lot of that comes down to what the generation that's setting up the family office, you know, believes they have done to prepare the next generation to be able to do that themselves. They very much face similar types of issues when it comes uh, with regards to, um, uh, I'm sorry, the success and failures of deals. Okay. You know, de depending on the, the profile or the mix of the investment strategy of a family office, whether it be outside investors or, you know, or the family managed investments, if they are looking at higher risk investments, um, you know, then again, at the end of the day, they're going to have a very similar track record to that of a venture capital firm looking at, you know, early to, you know, to growth capital type of investments. If the family office takes a more conservative role and they're only looking at the I call EBITDA-based businesses, then I would I would expect to see a uh, you know a higher success rate. Uh, can't tell you whether or not it's going to be higher rates of returns or not. That's just you know <laughs> only time tells you that with your investments. But but they're subject to the same exact issues that that a venture capital firm is doing. Okay. So I, I think you're starting to answer this question already, but I want to I want to hit it directly because I, again I think it's a it's a, an important question. So I think when outsiders look at family offices, I think we tend to we tend to have an image of our mind of uh, of the the playboy, the the constant gallivanting around the world, the golfing, et cetera, et cetera. But you're kind of painting a picture where it's much more of a of a business. Uh, of of a business entity where you're out there and you're actively doing you're working you're doing deals the job is different but it's 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 certainly a job and one that has to be taken seriously is that a fair characterization it's absolutely i mean it is yes in that it is it is a job that has to be taken seriously you are managing lp's money it doesn't matter if you're managing your own money or if you've got advisors that are managing that capital for you. So, I mean, you know, true family offices, you know, it, it is a business and they hold themselves 
you know, and again, as I, I said to you, I mean, every, every one of them can be set up differently, but I know of a few family offices and they hold themselves to themselves to very strict standards with regards to looking at all of their investments, looking at what their IRR is, you know, does it make sense to stay in this vertical? Um, I mean, again, no different than, than how a business would be run. That is slightly different than how you preface the conversation by saying, or the question by saying, you know, some people think of, you know, a family office as a trust fund baby. Um, They're out there. Absolutely. They are. It's getting harder and harder to, to generate that type of, of wealth. Although the dot-com industry would tell you maybe not, or the you know Silicon Valley, but um, it's getting tougher and tougher. Uh, but at the same, at the same, how do I say this? There may not be as many of those type of flamboyant um, playboys out there anymore. They don't need to be. It seems to me that the entertainment industry is 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 more than sufficient at providing us enough icons to follow that are gallivanting around and throwing money away. Um, I think the family offices now, and again, this is just an opinion, but the, they, I think the participants try to keep a lower profile because you are exposed to so much more today with cell phone cameras and everything else going on in social media that the lower profile you can keep, um, the less you are going to be subjected to risks, uh, and those risks comes in the, you know, in the, uh, in the, in the form of lawsuits and that type of stuff. It's just, it's just different, but it, but it all goes back to what the founder or the creator of that family office thinks of the next generation or the next generation after that. Now, most family offices, I think, are ultimately founded by the success of one core business. You know, and and even today, the Rockefellers own uh, a stake in Exxon Mobil, and and the Fords own a stake in in Ford Motor Company. Although there's a weird story behind that; they should own more, but they don't. Um, right. Uh, you know, Mark Zuckerberg has his own family office now, and they and that still owns a big chunk of Facebook, even though it's public. Um. Do, do, is it your impression that most family offices, once that kind of, once the, the, the wealth gets organized in that way, do, do they tend to then start to branch out into, into other businesses? A diversification, absolutely. I mean, t- take for instance, Mark Zuckerberg. Zuckerberg has no idea what the next generation is going to look like. And with, you know, just in his age, I mean, he's what, 20 years younger than I am probably. Uh, and I'm not old yet, <laughs> but, uh, but, but he has no idea what it's looking like. So I think part of it is going to be, you know, generate, uh, um, um, you know, transferring wealth generationally. That's part of why you set up those, you know, the family offices diversification, <clears throat> not only for the, the uh, for, his future generations, but for him, um, you know, the old adage, you never want all of your eggs in one basket, even though you control that basket, you know, so you may even drop it, but yeah. So if you can diversify and that is a way to do it and keep it in a structure that is not subject to the transfer taxes 
later. Um, and as it, you know, and again, as you said, he's got a, uh, he set up the foundation or the family office with most with, with stock. Well, the, you know, that affords him the ability to grow the value of that family office, um, you know, as he grows his core business. And that just allows him, you know, the chance to, you know, move more money into that tax free. Now there there are kind of different flavors of of family offices out there. There's the the classic sort of single family uh family office where everything's sort of captive. There's there's the multifamily office where where it's kind of like a co-op or a or um a fractional ownership of a jet. And then there are kind of even virtual family offices where there's some certain family office characteristics but it's not necessarily formally organized. Uh, that way, um, are, are you aware of those distinctions? And is that are you in a position to maybe talk about maybe some of the pros and cons of uh, of those kind of flavors? Um, well, I mean, again, I can give you my my opinion <clears throat> for whatever it's worth. Every man has one, uh, but or every person has one nowadays. I apologize; didn't mean to sound that way. Um, so. I am, you know, when when I think of a multifamily office, I think of a similar DNA that travels throughout that family office. the The names of the, you know, of the players maybe maybe changed with regards to marriage and that type of stuff, but there's an inherent DNA that runs through all of them that traces back to the origin of the family office. Uh, I could be wrong. I, you know, again, I don't, I don't, uh, I don't call on family offices, uh, um, per se to know that many of them. Uh, is, uh, I, I think of a true functioning, um, family office as being one family. Uh, and then I think there's two flavors. And again, it goes back to something you taught me, which is that shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves. It's not a, that's not something I had heard before. Uh, I do understand it. I didn't know they put that name to that phenomenon of, you know, losing your wealth after two or three generations. Um, I believe, and I hope I'm not rambling too much for you, but I believe that it, it goes back to what I said before. When you set up that family office or, or the, the, the originator, the, you know, the titular head of the family sets it up, he, or she has kind of made a decision in their own mind, I believe of what they have done to prepare the next generation. And you have some that look at it and don't believe they've prepared them very well. And they structure that family office where it's got to be managed by an outsider. You know, they, the, (laughs) the next generation needs adult supervision because they're not capable of doing it themselves. Well, you know, I will tell you that for a different, myriad of reasons that goes back to, you know, more times than not, it falls back to the, you know, you know, to the person that's setting that fund up. Um, but, you know, it, it, as I've said to you before, we do not operate a formal family office, but I was also forced to, to, you know, to work my, my, we, we didn't come from that kind of wealth. And my father's attitude was, even if he does create it, we were going to know his kids were going to know how to work. All of us. 
um, the boys were stuck on construction sites and the girls were typically stuck in the office. Um, you know, it was, a, it was, you know, that was 30, 40, and in some cases, 50 years ago, uh, with my older siblings. Um, so that was just how they did it, but that was his way of doing it. Uh, but he did prepare us. He taught us to work. Uh, and we were very fortunate as a family that we worked together. I worked with my brothers and my sisters and my dad on a daily basis, whether it was running our family, you know, development business or whether we were, you know, analyzing things to, to invest in. Now you said something I want to, I want to zero in on because I hadn't thought of that. And I think that's so insightful, which is the DNA. And as I interpret it, I, I, I know that there's a, there's a biological DNA, but I think there's also a philosophical DNA. Correct. And, and getting into, to multifamily offices. And I hadn't, frankly, I had not thought of this issue before. You know, there, there are plenty of folks out there that offer multifamily office services, all the big wealth management firms, whether it's Merrill Lynch or UBS or whoever, they offer that and they say, look, you know, you want a family office, but maybe your wealth isn't at that point where you can justify taking on all the overhead yourself. So you get that fractional, uh, that fractional approach. But hmm. then it occurred to me that, you know, well, what if the other people kind of in your, you know, that they're going to be in, in, invited into your, your condo or in your campsite don't share the same values, don't have the same needs and short and long term goals that can probably very quickly become an awkward fit and, and hurt the, 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 the success really of everybody involved. So Michael, what I hear you describe in, in, is in the way you're asking that question or the way you're kind of describing that scenario, what I hear or think of in my head is an LP network. So, you know, when you talk about a Merrill Lynch that's managing multiple family offices, I would look at those multiple family offices as limited partners that Merrill Lynch is providing the, you know, the partner, the management piece of. But, but again, each one of those family offices is going to have a, in this term of DNA, it's going to be an investment strategy and a theory and a philosophy of, of how, the, what do they want from that investment? Is it high growth? Is it, you know, do they want something that's income producing, as I call it, mailbox money, where, you know, it's slightly lower growth, but it's 8% or 6% or whatever they can count on every, you know, every year coming in that mail. Um, you're not going to cross-pollinate if you are the manager. And, and again, we'll stick with the, uh, your, your reference to Merrill Lynch. If Merrill Lynch is the one managing those multiple portfolios of family offices, Merrill Lynch is not going to cross-pollinate a growth family office with a income-oriented family office. Right, or at least they shouldn't. <laughs> or they, it, well, they won't be managing the money long if they do. Yeah, I would imagine that's true. So. <laughs> Um, so you touched on something I, I want to touch on, and I, I, I need to, to ask this question delicately, and you'll probably want to answer it very delicately. But it's it's important in terms of in terms of the management. You know, the, the operative word in family office is is family, 
And, and you mentioned that, you know, sometimes there is, there are circumstances where it's not appropriate for a family member to manage the family office. You know, maybe, maybe the people are just, are just too young. Maybe they're not, maybe they're not cut out for it. You know, not everybody, even, even if you're in a wealthy family, that doesn't necessarily mean you're good at business. You have any kind of aptitude for it. Mm-hmm. So in your experience and what you've observed, um, how, how does it, get kind of worked out do do families kind of default to kind of the eldest working age person or do do you find that they go out and 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 hire kind of professional management or is it is it some mix of the two or is it all over the board i would i would again not not speaking specifically for anything that i know um again just opinion but i believe it's all over the board um, there are, uh, you know, there are a couple of key things that, that I have often thought I think are important in, in, you know, a family office. And, and when I talk about a family office, I think of it as a family that's investing together, whether that's formally or informally. When you speak of a true family office that's set up, that dynamic is a formal instrument that drives a an organization whether it's a you know an llc or llp or mlp whatever it may be um but there are some things that you know it with an informal arrangement uh, there are some key things that have to to be in place otherwise an informal process doesn't work and and one of the key ingredients is um, there's got to be an inherent respect between the players that are sitting at the table, whether those players are all related, you know, through their biological DNA or whether or not they are, uh, related both through DNA and operating agreement that says they need to be there. Um, so if there's an advisor at the table, the family members need to respect that advisor. Secondarily, I think for an informal office to work well, you you have to understand that among the family members, there is a hierarchy. Um, you know, you do have, you know, older and younger siblings, and there's a there's a respect that should run regardless of, you know, and, and again, it's just how I was raised. There's a respect that runs through the family for your older and younger siblings. You know, you look to the older one um, in a quick diversion, but I can, in my particular instance, um, you know, I'm the youngest of five kids. And I remember it wasn't long ago that I lost my dad. And, uh, you know, I was talking with my father before he passed away and I looked at him and I'll never forget it. We were sitting outside talking. This was probably within a month of when he passed. We knew it was coming. Um and uh, I said to him, I'm not ready for you to, to, to go yet. And he goes, no, you're going to be fine. I said, he goes, you're, you got your mom here. You got your brothers. And so I said, no, but I'm not ready to be that next generation. I said, I'm used to having you. So we, and my point is we all, we have that older generation to look for. When my father passed, yes, my mother is, you know, still part of that generation that is still there, who I still respect and look to. 
But a lot of it reverts to my older brothers, my older sisters. You know, I look to them. That is kind of our hierarchy. Um, you know, I'm, I'm comfortable with that. Some people might think I was crazy. And then the last piece, Michael, that I will touch on is in order for an informal office, you know, or, or family to work kind of as a, as a family office, uh, you got to like being around each other. You got to like working together. It's not just about making money. It's about being together and doing things together. When one succeeds, you all succeed, regardless of the degree of success. Um, you know, everybody kind of does it together. So that's more of an informal process. A formal process, it's all scripted out on paper. Here's who's going to make the decisions here, the how they make the decisions. And that's got to be decided by the creator of that family office. I, uh, I think that's a great way to... I think it's a great way to kind of finish it. I really appreciate you sharing that story. Um, you can sort of hear a pin drop in the studio as we were listening to that. That's powerful yeah. stuff. Um, and, and, you know, and I want to, I want to go back to something you and I had in a, in a, in a private conversation that I don't think you'll mm-hmm. mind that I express is that you told me that if, if the first motivation is about the money, it's never going to work. It will never work. It's got to be the it relationships first. But the money's there. But Michael, but... that's not a family office. That's life. That's life. If your only motivation in life is money, you you got a long, long road ahead of you and a very sad life ahead of you. Um, it's uh, it, it's not about that. It's about your family and it's about your faith. And you follow those two things. That was the core value my parents taught me. You follow those two things down life, and you will have not only a good life, but a very successful life. The rest of it will fall into place. But you follow your family and your faith. Uh, I can't think of a better ending, so I'm going to quit while we're ahead. Um, <laughs> yeah, because you never know what I could say after that. So. <laughs> or me. I'm I'm not going to add anything to that. So. That's going to wrap it up for today's program. I'd like to thank Chris Dimitri so much for joining us and sharing his expertise with us. And uh, do check out Laszlo as well. It's, it's, it's a cool company I think we'll be hearing more of in the future. We'll be exploring a new topic each week. So please tune in so that when you're faced with your next business decision, you have clear, clear vision when making it. If you enjoy these podcasts, please consider leaving a review with your favorite podcast aggregator. It helps people find us so that we can help them. Once again, this is Mike Blake, our sponsors, Brady Ware and Company, and this has been the Decision Vision Podcast. 